episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today I have for you part one of a two-part special with my good friend, Christina Peichels, a working actress in Los Angeles. And for the first part of our recording, I thought she did an amazing job offering insights of not only what it is to be a working actress in Hollywood and sort of shake off some of the misconceptions, but also the introduction of technology. How does that affect one's ability to, for example, audition? Uh, What are some of the uh, absurdities that have occurred as we move and merge from traditional entertainment to this combination of entertainment and technology? Maybe this is something that's always been around and we're just witnessing this sort of current movement towards app-based technology. But I thought it was really interesting to hear that much of the uh, frustrations that can occur come from this over-reliance on technology and how oftentimes there's maybe a lack of self-awareness when it comes to leaning too heavily on apps when oftentimes it may create more problems than solutions. So I really appreciated Christina's uh, honesty and openness. And uh, stay tuned for next week when we do our part two of this conversation, where we talk a bit more about her YouTube show that she started, where she introduces a breath of fresh air, a little good old common sense into an otherwise kind of absurd society we're currently living in. So I want to thank Christina for her time. I want to thank you all for listening once again. And so without further ado, my guest today, Christina Peichels. No. <laughs> Welcome. I, I don't know. Christina Peichels. See, I have for a very long time in my mind been calling you Christina Pickles. <laughs> and then I, As does everyone. And then I saw your new YouTube show and I realized it was Peichels. And so I've corrected it just in time. Yes. So, Eventually, everyone will know how to say my name. Well, when you become inf- uh, internet famous and you become a huge YouTuber influencer and um, and you'll get your TV show signed based on your followers. That's how it works these days, right? Apparently. Apparently. So, you know, and uh, it's it's all, yeah, build your own brand, do all your own work. And then, then somebody comes along to make money off of you. Isn't it strange? So I was having this conversation with someone the other day, I think it was just on a message board, but they were talking about um, Twitter followers and Twitter numbers being sort of a benchmark for success or notoriety. And I was trying to explain to him that in fact, most of the people whom you see who have massive followings are either already incredibly famous or they, um, they buy them, right? Or they have yeah. bots amplify them so that they then become huge. And it's 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 such a strange way that the world of entertainment has transcended into or, or journeyed into or, or degraded into in that you're right. It's almost like your talent as, as an actor, singer, whatever, isn't enough to – warrant being looked at seriously by studios, labels, etc. You have to become you have to have these arbitrary social media numbers to justify being even given an opportunity. Yeah, and I've actually heard I've heard I mostly heard casting directors talk about this, but I've heard some, you know, others in the industry and um 
it's funny because now they say like Twitter doesn't matter so much, but you have to have Instagram. Mm. But in some of these cases, they they are insisting that you just have an Instagram and that you send your Instagram handle because and this is hilarious to me. They want to look at your photographs and see, oh, well, this is actually what you look like right now. Like there's this concept Um, that people aren't Photoshopping their Instagram photos. (laughs) Well, you know what it is? And I will say this. I have seen this where uh, people will turn in headshots back in the old headshot days. You remember those days. Uh And they'd be like, you know, they'd be like from 30 years ago when you, when people were young and fit and then people show up for the audition 30 years later and they're rightfully middle age or what have you. And so I Yes, I can kind of understand it. But to your point, it's not like people aren't photoshopping and, and filtering and shooting the right angles for their Instagram photos anyway. Yeah. I, in fact, I would say the Instagram photos are probably worse, you know, for the most part. Yeah. Um, you can you can do everything. You can slap on a filter. You can you can even face, you know, whatever that is, morph your face to look like a different person. Face shape. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um but it's just so wild to me because I mean yeah we're we're past the uh paper phase. I I have a stack of them. I guess I could just use as kindling at this point. Well, if we ever have a uh, shutdown <laughs> and uh toilet paper comes in in short supply again. <laughs> you're prepared. I don't know. I don't know those glossies. They uh I didn't say it was going to be fun. Yeah. I didn't say it was going to be fun. <laughs> but yeah, no, but I can use it for heating or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, now, now, you know, everything is digital. So the thing is you could, and there, and there are a couple of websites, casting websites where it says, you know, like you can upload a selfie in me, like in the submission. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that makes way more sense. Like upload a current photograph if you really want that. But it's just hysterical to me that they think Instagram is the place to go. Cause that's where you're going to see the real person. I'm like, not so much. <laughs> There's one thing that, I always try to impress upon folks, especially when they have misconceptions about what Hollywood is or isn't, right? And I say, when I use the term Hollywood, I use it the way most of us experience it, which is that we're working or working class laborers within the entertainment industry, right? Very many, very few of us are, you know, hanging out with the, uh, the I don't know, who's a famous person of the world, uh, Tom Cruise's of the world or anything like that, right? Most of us are, you know, we work on gigs and we go move on to the next projects and so on and so forth. But we live and work in around the Los Angeles, Hollywood area. And I think the one thing that's very surprising to people is that it is a, it, Hollywood is very behind the times in a lot of regards. Um, yeah. The industry moves very slowly and very conservatively. And that is, that is a, a shock to people who who just they have this preconception that Hollywood is full of these uber progressive technocratic, um, you know, uh, movers and shakers of culture and industry. But the reality of it is, is the money makers, the money controllers are extremely risk adverse, and they're very slow to change. And there's a lot of complications because these are massive studios, and it all trickles down, and and things like moving away from the physical glossy headshot process, which for actresses and actors was the way that you auditioned. You had to get, you had to spend the money to go get someone to take a photo of your head 
And then yeah. you had to get spend more money to print them out, glossy or matte, to, you're depending. And then you had yeah. to submit them all around town, keep them in your trunk, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, what's so crazy about that is – so here we have the technology, right, for everyone to basically take a photo of themselves mm-hmm. and put it on the Internet. So you would think if if the claim is we want to see an actual representation of what you look like, right. you know, because obviously when you get in front of a camera, it doesn't really lie. So if that's the claim, if that's what they want, then why do we even use professional photographers at this stage? Why aren't we just uploading selfies and saying, here I am? Because, you know, a professional, I, I've done it all. I, I've used, you know, all the different levels, in, including um, the, the last set I got here in Los Angeles. He's uh, one of the top and most expensive photographers. And, you know, it was a great experience, but, you know, you've got the professional makeup artist who does things mm-hmm. I can't do on a regular basis. <laughs> um, I did do my own hair, though, because I've learned that that long ago. Like, hair is a big thing. Do, do it yourself. Um, but again, you know, to replicate what he did and what she did um, uh, for myself is very tricky, you know, Um Because even, I mean, even the raw photos are pretty, you know, impressive. But then on top of that, when he, uh, you know, just edited them, it wasn't necessarily like a ton of like Photoshop in the sense that people probably think about it, you know, like there was no morphing my facial features or anything like that. But it's just those, you know, those, those minor adjustments to the entire photograph that can make, that can make all the difference that, you wouldn't have if you were just, you know, taking a picture with your iPhone. Well, I have the answer to that. I, I could tell you exactly why professionals were used traditionally in the headshot process. Executives are incredibly bad at visualizing. That's what I've determined. Mm. So, you know, the reality of it is for people who don't know, when you're an actor, you get you come to set in oversized glasses and your hair in a bun and sweatpants. <laughs> and then a whole team of people make you look like a star. Right. Yeah. And so that includes those very same professional makeup artists and hairdressers and wardrobe and all that, all that photographers, directors of photography, et cetera. It's the same process. So I think the reason why prior to this sort of, as people are starting to move into technology sources uh, and solutions, the reason why you were asked to do the whole get up is because they can't, look at you fresh face and imagine what you will look like at the end of that process or in a certain look or in a certain design incapable. These creatives are are the least imaginative oftentimes. (laughs) I've often said the same thing. I'm like for a group of people who are supposed to be like visual creatives, you guys have zero imagination. Right. Um, So I've actually taken it and this was kind of what I did with my last session. Uh, I took it in kind of a, a different perspective and it, it's actually very close to what you said. So instead of looking at my headshots as a, as the traditional, this is a, just a representation of what I look like. Right. Or, you know, even just a, a pretty photograph, mm-hmm. I actually took it to the degree of looking at it as the promotional materials. And I specifically looked for um, the aesthetic that would match 
certain television shows. Mm. So I I tend to go for like the darker, grittier um, things. And at the time I was still living in Georgia. So like The Walking Dead is a big thing. Um, well, I guess it's over now. But, you know. Um, There's like 20 spinoffs. All- so. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, it still works. Yeah. Um, but then and you also get your crime dramas, mm-hmm. which is always a always a thing. And so I just would look at um, how they, uh, you know, how they uh, what aesthetic they use when they market the show. So you can you can look for casting photos. You can look for, you know, the the general like the whole cast photo. You can look for that promo material mm-hmm. and you can see that, you know, certain shows definitely have a very specific vibe. Right. And so that that's actually how I ended up with the like I have a I have a bunch with a dark gray like background. Mm-hmm. It's very dramatic, very intense. And if you Google some of these shows, you'll see that that's how they shoot like their promotional photos. So it goes to what you're saying, like they can't imagine it. So here, let me just put myself in your show. Yeah. See, this is what it looks like. And um, so I took it that direction. And then. I also have like on my profiles, I do have photos that I didn't take them with my iPhone because I, I have a, you know, a proper camera, but I have some other photos that I took mm-hmm. that are a lot more uh, like traditional casting wise. So it's not as fancy. Right. Um, it's a, and it's a lot more like, okay, this is what I look like. Uh, Cause now, Oh, here's a trend that's coming back that I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, apparently now they want to see us in costumes. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> that, that's a, that is such an old school thing. And it used to, I mean, it's so old. It became a, it became a joke. Like that's like straight out of central casting. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're wearing a doctor's, uh, coat or a cop uniform or, you know, like ex- that's what they're asking for now. When I was coming up and it, I remember people being told not to do that. Like exactly. Like specifically Same. don't do that. Like don't come in cosplay, come as you are. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what they didn't want. And so you're saying we've cycled back, we've horseshoed back to uh, even less imagination being applied and more hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even, uh, literally even four or five years ago, um, that would have been a, a absolutely no, 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 don't do that. It looks like, like I said, it looks like a, uh, you look like a background extra. You look like you're at central casting, you know, and no, not to knock them. It's just, that's what they request mm-hmm. specifically for those kind of websites and casting things. So for them to now be doing that to actors, you know, I, I'll granted, I'll say it's probably for the co-stars, the smaller roles, I hope. I don't know. <laughs> like, one thing I've noticed. Can- one thing I've noticed is that um, there seems to be this sort of, and again, maybe maybe this has always been the case. It's very possible, but less and less executives have set experience. Is what I've come across. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, when when people look at credits, I'm sure you know this. That like they look at credits and they see executive producers or production executives or what have you. A lot of times, many of those folks come from the desk of another executive. So, mm. you know, let's say you ever heard that old parable? You know, um, hard times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And it's a sort of 
yeah. this cycle of of hardship and and um, and prosperity. And so, I think what occurs is that there are folks who come up, you know, the the chain of film, working on sets, being an on set producer, line producer, what have you, AD director, some some on set physical interaction with the process of filmmaking and they get promoted until they become executives and then they have an assistant and most times in hollywood if you're an assistant to an executive you're only contracted to like a year and then the idea Mm -hmm. is that you'll be positioned in some other placement within the studio system junior executive director of development something along those lines and so those folks maybe those folks went to film school Right, and maybe they have some limited short <laughs> film experience. Then they get on the desk of an executive. They learn from the executive, and then now they're the executive. They have their yeah. own assistant. You know, and as you can see, like the further you get from the source of the person who worked on set, the further and further and further you get people who only have experience in the office. And so, as you mm-hmm. start seeing uh, studios being filled with executives who are mostly off a desk. Or worse, in modern times, technology companies buying. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, buying media companies. You start seeing oh. less traditional, what we would traditionally consider filmmakers making the decisions, and therefore, it's if you look at it from that perspective, that it's kind of you can kind of understand why many of these execs can't imagine what a fresh-faced photo will look like once it goes through the process of hair and makeup and wardrobe. They can't imagine what the process will look like once you once you do the process of filmmaking to the, get the end result because they don't know it. They haven't lived it. They haven't spent countless hours on set experiencing it. I can look at you in this video right now. I can look at you and I can imagine you in like seven different roles. Exactly yeah. the way it would look because I've just – you know, I've been on, I don't know, I haven't counted how many films I've been on, but over 50, maybe over 60 now, somewhere in that range. I, I don't know, but a lot, a lot to, I've seen yeah. enough actresses and actors show up to set looking like they woke up on their couch and, <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, an hour to two hours later coming out, looking like the biggest movie stars in the world. Yeah. But for, Hey, for the record, I did brush my hair today. That true. Like that's. I, that, I mean, I did that much. Well, I was. That's an accomplishment. I was. I was concerned <laughs> because I heard that you had some squirrel issues last night, and I, <laughs> I thought that perhaps a night of uh, listening to squirrels play soccer on your roof would have kept you up, and maybe you wouldn't have wanted to brush your hair. Who knows? But I can, uh, I can imagine it, it all the same. It did. It did keep me up. I. I swear to God, that's what was happening, and then I. Uh, we. I had the crows before we started recording. I was I was hoping the crows and my wind chimes would really add to the vibe, yeah, you know, because they like they like to sit outside my window and just call like the yeah. loudest. I'm like, go away, stop! I'm not gonna feed you. Hey. Um, but yeah, I th- you know, and I think uh, I think the I think the AT and T Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, all of that debacle, I think is an excellent example of what you're talking about where Mm -hmm. people who know nothing about actually making films or television are in charge and disaster ensues i mean that is such a mess i i don't even know how discovery is going to clean it up but i don't know i mean i (laughs) I, uh i did i guess i could talk about now because the company went under but i did a i produced a show for quibi a few years back 
And um, mm. for those of you who don't remember Quibi, don't worry. If you, if you blinked, you missed it. <laughs> I was like, I've heard the name. Yeah. That's it. Quibi was uh, short for Quick Bites. And it was this idea that was started by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who used to work at Disney. And uh, I forget his partner, but I think they came from tech in some way. And they had partnered. They raised like a billion dollars of startup capital. And they were going to produce these um, you know, cinematic level shows to be to be viewed and consumed on your cell phone strictly and they were going to fill them with stars and they had this idea that people spend a lot of time commuting and they only have time to watch things in short bites quick bites quibbies and they were going to produce these these you know mostly they were they were feature length films that were chopped up into 10 minute increments give or take uh. and that you'd be able to watch 10 minutes at a time or maybe 20 minutes at a time a show and then you pick it up on your next section of your commute. Right. And, um, you know, sound enough logic, I suppose, except the problem was that this was a company being run by an elderly man who would come up through a traditional massive studio. And I don't reckon it would be unfair to say he was maybe out of touch with the way young people consume media on their phones. And also, Mm -hmm. you know, cinematic shows still do well the game of thrones of the world still do well people just watch them at home when they get home right the netflix model shows that people will binge shows uh, normal linked shows on their traditional television sets even if they've cut the cord yeah i think a lot of their hope was not only based on this basic misunderstanding of how young people consume content, but also because it was, it was really being championed and cheerled by the tech side of their company. And one of the gimmicks, the main gimmick of Quibi was that you could, if you held your phone in landscape, you would see one view. It maybe, you know, it might be a different camera angle. It might be a different character perspective, what have you. And if you turned it vertical, it would, change the perspective. So it might be, you know, you might go from a, a wide in landscape to a close up in in um, you know, vertical and vice versa. And you could control which angle you saw. The show that I Oh God. Yeah. The show <laughs> that I did tried to be very clever with that and try to show different perspectives. So when it was in landscape, you could see the movie as though it was a normal TV show or movie. And when you held it vertically, you only saw the perspective of the phone. So if the guy was flipping through Instagram and you turned your phone vertical, you saw the Instagram screen being doom scrolled. If he was on Google Maps, if you turned it vertical, you could see the Google Map, right? So mm-hmm. there was room for cleverness, but you know you can only do that for one or two of these shows, you know, before you just run out of ideas. And so it they, they were tra- they were really trying to push this technology as this new wave of of consuming media, and it. It spectacularly failed. And it reminds me of, of even years before I got into film, I worked for a shoe company called Geox. And their whole gimmick was they were shoes for commuters. Again, this seems to be a common theme. And yeah. they had these uh, air pockets, right? So that you, your foot could breathe so you don't get sweaty, swollen feet, right? Okay. It was a whole technology-based shoe wear. <laughs> Ironically, all their ads f- featured shoes with like these, these air streams coming out of them which just looked like okay. the, the the shoes were had flatulence issues <laughs> i mean needless to say that company failed also and in fact i was working for them right before i was dabbling in film at the time but i was working for them right before i i made the jump into film full time and if they hadn't shut down if they hadn't just completely 
botched their expansion, I may not have you know, had severance package to really pursue film full time. But in both of those instances, it's very evident to me that leaning heavily into technology and assuming that that's what people are looking for, a technological edge has, has oftentimes failed. And I, and I think that when we look at things like the Warner brothers, uh, who was it? It's Warner brothers. Um, who was the tech it's discovery now discovery? Oh, now. No, the but who bought them? It was, was a variety at and AT&T owned Warner and yeah. all that. Yeah. So, so you, you basically transfer all these folks who grew up in a studio system, which has its own flaws as we've highlighted. And then you hand over the, the, the power reins to people who make cell phone and look at yeah. data and you say, be creative now. And can't even get you a cell service. Especially Los Angeles. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> They're in charge of media now. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder that didn't go well, right? I can't imagine uh, how that could have occurred. Who would have produced it? Uh, I mean, John Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, to me, it all comes down to it sounds like just so many people trying to set aside storytelling. Mm for this just create 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 content like just but you can't like people still it it is quite clear that people still want you know that they they still find the elements of storytelling necessary oh yeah you know you you talk about like like this idea that oh they only want to like take little bits at a time i'm like who does that no who does that if you're talking if you're telling a large story i you know, I can't wait to know what happened next. I don't want to listen to it bit by bit throughout my day. I want I want to know how it ends yeah. now, you know? Um, and that's why, you know, I can't imagine that working for a film, but for uh, for television, you know, you still have that where each episode generally tells a complete story. Yeah, it should. And then links, uh, yeah, and then links <clears throat> to the next and links to the next. Occasionally you get that like cliffhanger at the end. But, you know, that that has worked for so long for reasons like you can't. And and honestly, this all goes I mean, it goes way, way, way back to the invention of theater, you know, um, where the idea was for you to sit and and take in a whole story in two hours or, or, you know, three hours or something like that. Um, You know, my my. My feeling is that if it's something you, if it's a, if it's content, I want to just, you know, take in in a short time, then it needs to be, again, a full thing. It it has to be beginning, middle and end in that, you know, five minutes. I I don't want to be left going, what? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, look, I mean, the the fact that once streaming became mainstream, people got accustomed to binging, right? Binge watching. Mm -hmm tells me that people don't want to watch things in short bites. They don't even want to watch one episode at a time. They can't no. even wait a week, just like you alluded to. Like, you want to know what happens next. And yeah. I think that... if I think if you're telling a compelling story. True, yes, of course, which again is See, important. Yeah, so to me, it sounds like these are people who don't know how to tell a compelling story. Well, it's not, the, because, it's not their craft. Right. If you, if, if you want to... Uh, if you want to pull an audience, like 
the whole point is to pull an audience in and to keep them, mm-hmm. right? You know, you want to keep them for two hours or seven seasons or 12 seasons, or you want to keep them. You don't want them going, oh, that was fun in five minutes and done and over with. And like, what? How does that, that just doesn't equal longevity. And I think that's the main mistake a lot of these companies are making is it's like, oh, we're, we're just trying to, to do it. They, it does sound like they're trying to appeal to the, you know, the ADD nation, you know, like, oh, we can't watch anything but for five minutes. But, and then. But that's not accurate. It's the problem. The problem. Yes, they are. They, they, they think that that's. Yeah. But it's but it's not true, because if you look at the quote unquote ADD nation, they're still binge watching shows. They'll watch. I know. They'll watch all the Harry Potter, double Harry Potter, do a Harry Potter marathon. There's like 50 movies and they'll watch everyone <laughs> sitting with maybe one pee break. Like that, this, this fallacy that these people can't, can't pay attention. I mean, look, there is some, there is some truth to that, but yeah. it's, it's, but it should not be the guiding light. And, and here's my positioning on it. Cause I've gotten into arguments on Twitter, which I shouldn't do, but I do. <laughs> We've all been there. About this oftentimes. To me, and you said you said this, you alluded to this earlier. As storytellers, our job is to captivate an audience for a pre-designed amount of time. If you walk into an opera, there's a reason why they say, do not leave in, unless it's intermission. Do not mm-hmm. leave during the middle of a performance. I grew up playing violin growing up. I came up with the understanding of etiquette in a um, in a in an art form. Right. If you're if you're going to watch some sort of performance art, you stay through the performance. That's part of it. And it's then the, also the obligation of the performers to captivate you so that you don't feel mm-hmm. compelled to leave or even like that's an option for you. Yeah. In the age I've done. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I'll let you finish. your. Thing. Oh, I was just going to say in the age where more and more people are watching movies at home versus the theater, then this is a mm-hmm. pet peeve of mine. There are too many distractions mm-hmm. at home. Yeah. It's so easy to get on your phone. I'm guilty of it also, and I am a storyteller. And so yeah. what occurs is you, you have all these folks who prioritize convenience over the quality of the work. And so yeah. because people are have an addiction to their phones, myself included, and mm-hmm. because watching movies at home offers the – there's no social pressure – to pay attention or stay off your phone or what have you. And therefore you are easily distracted. And I think that people behind technology conflate that with thinking that people enjoy watching movies that way. I don't think that people enjoy watching movies that way. I think that people are addicted and in a rut in the same way that eating fast food every day becomes an addiction or a rut or a habit, but no one really enjoys it long term. I've met very few people who enjoy eating fast food every day. They just find themselves like, you know, they're on the road, they're driving between Mm -hmm. gigs. And, you know, for me, like there's not a lot of vegan options available for me. So like, oh, you know what? Burger King has an impossible burger. And I'll catch myself. If I'm doing a lot of errands, I'll catch myself having it like three three times a week. I don't enjoy Mm. it. Maybe the first time. Right. But not by <laughs> yeah. the third time. But it just becomes yeah. a thing that I do because I've I have we live in a society that that promotes you multitasking at all times. That we have yeah. lost we've lost the um, sanctity of being a, a captively held audience. And these yeah. tech technology companies, which are also responsible for us being distracted, 
right? They think mm-hmm. that that's actually what we in how we enjoy consuming content, and I don't think that's true. No, but you know, it goes back to the the example you had with the Quibi or whatever, where they were they were talking about making content for people who are commuting, and I'm like, you know, that used to be called listening to the radio. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather listen to, you know, a playlist of my favorite songs than trying to watch a like a TV show in five minutes. That doesn't make sense. Especially on your phone. But, that's like so small. Like what you can't even see. Yeah. Anything. Yeah. But and, and, and like you said about, you know, content at home. And and I do think that's where they're getting this idea. Yeah. You know, they're they're tr- because they're trying to recapture, you know, obviously we're, we're having the, the issue now where the theater, the movie theater is, you know, struggling to Mm -hmm. get people back because, well, people did enjoy watching movies at their home. And I think that's where they get this idea that, oh, oh, we have to try to give them what they have at home in these other spaces. But that's not how it works. If you're going out, you want something different, you know? It, it, when you're at home, look, I, you know, I'll I'll turn something on while I'm cleaning or sure, whatever. Yeah. That's that's a different thing, right? It, but like, if I'm if it's a show or a movie or something that I really want to watch, you know, yeah, I'm probably going to put my phone down. I'm probably going to pay attention, and if I get distracted, you know, there is that ability to back it up. Right. And I think that's key. You can rewatch. You can you can rewind. You can you have the control at home. You don't have that in like the theater. So that's that's, I think, the massive difference is when you're in those spaces. You know, if you've paid that money to watch that movie and you spend half of it on your phone, well, didn't you just flush your money down the toilet? Right. Uh, But, you know, you you were mentioning um, live performances. I've done live theater. Mm -hmm. And it is a dramatically different experience. And I actually think that's one of the things that, you know, it's gotten lost over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see it get a resurgence and, and perhaps it will, you know, due to the pandemic and everyone being stuck inside and now they want to get out and do things. And, you know, maybe that's one of those things that we'll, we'll see a nice resurgence plus movies aren't doing great right now. <laughs> People Unless they're Marvel movies. The Marvel movies are. <laughs> well, yeah, but people across the board are kind of like, eh, you know, I'm tired of the same old, same old, same old. And um, as, as you said earlier, Hollywood is always behind. I always I always think it's because they're chasing trends mm-hmm. and you can't you can't know what the trend is until it's trending. So you're always going to be behind if you're chasing a trend. I also. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, and then so what happens is, you know, okay, so the trend is already happening. It's trending now. Then Hollywood starts trying to chase it. So they're playing catch up. And then the the audience is now over it about halfway through Hollywood executing it. And, you know, they see that time and time and time again. And, you know, it's audience fatigue. And then all of a sudden, okay, we have to find something else. We got we to gotta switch the lanes, you know. What's what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next right. thing? So they are they are always behind. And it's it's frustrating on the creative side because, you know, if you if you want to be on the trend or even ahead and do something that nobody else is doing, they're just not interested. Well, not only that, sometimes those trends happen because you catch lightning in a bottle. Like, for example, the Marvel mm-hmm. thing. 
you know, Marvel movies are dominating the box office. This idea that people aren't going to the movies, it isn't true. The people are going to the movies. They just go to see Marvel films. They're not going to see mm. amazing, glorious, fantastically challenging films like Nightmare Alley, which was one of the best movies I've seen in ages. They're not going to see um, Blade Runner, you know, 2049. I think even Dune slightly underperformed in the box office. Mm. So they're they're just they're there's not going to see thought provocative films because you mentioned something earlier. Hollywood and the theater industry is trying to recreate the experience of home in the theater, and that's never mm-hmm. gonna occur because no. you'll never it'll never be as good. Right. Right? It's uh it's like not to be crass, but it's like it's like trying to recreate the experience of a lover by giving someone a blow-up doll. <laughs> it's going to fall short of expectations. It might do the just tr- a little. It might do the trick, but it's not the same experience. And so you can put couches in theaters. You can you can put liquor. You can whatever. You can. I mean, I remember at one point there was there was talk about theaters allowing cell phone usage during a film. This is how desperate and how out of touch they are. The reality is they should be going the opposite directions. They should be providing something in the theater that you can't get at home, that you can't experience, you know, Um, quality, quality uh, screen projection, amazing surround sound, a theater that stays quiet, doesn't have a bunch of assholes talking or being on their cell phones Mm or, you know, uh, spending 60 bucks to go to a film. Like these are all things that they could figure out a way to strengthen the things that people enjoy about the theater experience and lessen the stuff that they can do better at home, which is to be distracted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reason why I feel like Marvel films and, and superhero films in general do still are doing gangbusters in movie theaters when you know, a movie like Nightmare Alley does very poorly is because if you're going to go through all the ha- – going to a movie has become a hassle. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. It has yeah. it has priced out the lower middle classes, which it used to be the sanct- sanctuary of the lower and middle classes is going to a theater, going to a movie. Yeah. It's no longer that. Like out here in LA, I, as you know, it's like 16 bucks per ticket. So if you go mm-hmm. on a date or God forbid you got kids and you pay for parking – Right, right there, yeah. just just from the two tickets, that's thirty four bucks plus parking, six bucks. That's forty bucks. Now, God forbid, you actually have to buy something to eat or drink along the way, and you could easily drop a hundred hundred bucks, you know, a hundo mm-hmm. on a movie. And if you're gonna drop that kind of money, you're probably not gonna drop it for a movie that would be, perhaps from a perspective, in as enjoyable at home as it is in the theater. You're going to yeah. go watch the movie that is so big and bombastic and loud and a spectacle that it can only really be witnessed at a movie screen. Yeah. And, and that, I, I think that is it. That, that's it's the, it's this uh, new trend of the, it needs to be a, a spectacle yeah. in the theater. If you're going, it needs to be a spectacle. And that's where these, that's where these juggernaut billion dollar monsters came from Mm -hmm. you know they're like we we need to find a way to make people come and give us all that money and i do think it's key that that you know we are talking about yeah just the movie theater itself being priced out for most people that's why those people have to stay at home and watch it on their tv Mm -hmm. they can't afford to go to your theater and you know there is 
you know, uh, on one hand, it's like um, maybe their prices are fair. Maybe it's our income that's not, you know, the, that's a whole different yeah. ball game. But because if you think about it, of course, like there's no conceivable way that movies could still cost, you know, a dollar at the theater, right? Considering budgets and sure. all of that. But I mean, you could make the argument that if they weren't spending $300 million on films, they wouldn't mm. need to make as much money to turn a profit. And, yeah. and therefore you could lower and maybe and maybe it's a scale system. Maybe that's it, yeah. I was gonna say this this has been come this has come up and I think it came up even more during the pandemic, this uh pricing variant mm-hmm. for so you might not pay the same price for every movie in the theater. And it's an interesting concept to say, you know, for, for like the Marvel movies, they could charge that twenty dollars a ticket yeah. for something smaller that you know doesn't need that kind of money they can say oh you know here we got a five dollar it reminds me of the days when um you know there was there was the dollar matinee Mm -hmm. or uh even uh in the little town i i grew up in you know we had we had a dollar theater me too it was yeah it was a whole theater that just showed like not the most recent releases But, you know, they, they, they've been out for a little while. And then sometimes they show like an oldie. And, you know, for a dollar, you get to go and you get to have the experience and enjoy the movie. Now, of course, that was before, well, maybe around the same time. Let me, <laughs> as, you know, we start seeing cable television where you can watch those movies on your television. But even, I mean, I think we're close in age. I mean, I even then, so I had a dollar theater as well. And uh, and I yeah. I honestly think that my love of filmmaking, if not if it didn't start there, I mean I think I could probably trace the first movie or cinematic experience that I that really captivated me to Michael Jackson's Thriller, and specifically the making of of that. But shortly thereafter was the Dollar Cinema, and where I lived, the Dollar back then when you know when parents allowed their kids to be children and explore. Mom, I mean, you know, 10, maybe not 10, maybe it's a little young, maybe 12, 13, that range, maybe a little younger. Yeah. Mom would let me walk to the daughter cinema and she'd yep. give me like three bucks or I think my, my allowance growing up was like 10 bucks a month. And so, I, you know, I'd spend a couple of those dollars on a couple of movies a month and then the rest went to comic books generally. But <laughs> I would walk a half a mile in the city to the mall which was close by and I'd go to the dollar cinema during the daytime and then I'd walk home. Right. And yeah, that, like you said, there were usually movies that had been out for like three or four months or what have you, but they were still relatively new movies. And there was the occasional oldie that came through, but that was an opportunity to, to one, make additional money beyond the, you know, three week release and it gave yeah. folks who were poor, lower middle class, an opportunity to go see those films. They had to wait a little while, but that was okay because you, at a certain point, you're always just watching movies on a delay, and you're fine with that. You just that's just life, the way life is. And at least for me, at that age, there was no water cooler talk because I was a kid, so didn't care if yeah. you know someone had seen the, and and there there seemed also to be less pressure to see something like and and talk about it immediately. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was have you seen you know, that's yeah. how the conversation would start. Have you seen it? Oh, no. Okay. Well, I won't tell you then. Yeah. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know? 
but yeah, and I and I do wonder if this is you know one of the major shifts is that um, obviously we're talking about generational. So we grew up with that experience of uh, you know just being able to casually go to the theater and enjoy a, a film, and now you know there's a whole generation after us that really didn't do that. Like they they weren't spending because it, in a lot of cases it was probably too expensive for them to, you know, go spend their afternoon or their weekend or whatever, you know, just watching a movie with their friends or even by themselves, because I did that. And, and that seems to be a thing that doesn't happen anymore, you know? Yeah, I think it's strange, too, because there's, we're more as a society isolated and atomized than ever before. But Mm -hmm. there's also more pressure for us to be social, albeit in a digital sense. And so, you know, we talked a little bit, we, we alluded a little bit that some of these film related issues that we're talking about really have a role in a larger conversation about our government, our society that we built, the culture that we live in. And one of those things is that from the time that I was a kid till now, there was this big push to, to, to stop knowing your neighbor and more specifically yeah. that, that, your neighbor may not be as altruistic as you think that they are, that anyone could be a, a crazed killer, you know, with a the, the <laughs> smile on their face. I mean, I'm sure you remember yeah. all the, you know, your kids are going to get a razor blades in their apples during Halloween. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, nowadays the, I see, still see the meme. That's like, there are people who are giving your kids edibles, like marijuana edibles as candy. No one, certainly if you're buying marijuana edibles in California, those things are expensive. You're not giving those away. Oh uh, yeah, not at all. <laughs> exactly. Any, any pot, I was like, any pothead will tell you it's bullshit. Yeah, who who would waste their money on that? No way. Are you kidding? Those kids aren't worth it. But, <laughs> but, but the further we are insulated from one another, the more there is causation to believe that your your neighbors down the street are not only not worth knowing, but are potentially dangerous uh, and unhinged and and predators. Mm-hmm. Then. It it took away the possibility for you to allow your kid to walk to the mall by themselves unattended to go to a movie theater by themselves because there are pedophiles, rapists, murderers, terrorists, communists, Nazis at every corner, right? So you can't you yeah. can't let your children do that, and nope. um, and so they become more and more fixated with being inside which means more and more fixated with the television and then with the uh, the the mass spread of the of computers and the internet and the rise of cell phones. Mm-hmm. And so the more dangerous the greater society feels, the more likely you are to say, you know what, I'll just stay in. It's not worth it, yeah. I'll stay in. Someone got shot at a theater, I'll stay in. And of course, this is not to minimize these real tragedies that do occur, but with the way that our media works on this 24 seven news cycle. And especially with Twitter where news is like pushed out by the minute people just are, have gotten trained to stay inward, trained to stay um, insulated from any possible anyone else around them. And the only time they will venture out is generally in groups and generally to see big spectacles where you feel Mm -hmm. like that's kind of a safer risk and then you go back to your insulated homes and your cell phone and your television and your streaming services and the like. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to go all conspiracy theory there, but it all sounds like, I mean, 
you know, we have, again, we have these tech companies, we have these mega media companies, and they are, they are controlling everything. They are, they are controlling, you know, these, uh, these platforms, they're controlling the, the, the 24 hour news cycle, they're controlling everything. So they are the ones both actively creating that fear mm-hmm. and profiting from oh, it. Oh yeah. 100%. And they, they know what they're doing. They absolutely know what they're doing. And that's actually, that's actually the, uh, episode I'm, I'm working on the video I'm working on is, is essentially, um, how the media uses emotional manipulation, you know, for profit mm-hmm. and, and fear is a big tactic, you know, um, this, this, you have to fear your neighbor, you have to fear going out, you have to fear this, you have to fear this. Now, I do think due to the pandemic and the, and the coverage of just constant fear mongering, fear mongering, fear mongering, I think we're seeing the blowback. I think it's the yes. beginning of the, you know what, I'm sick and tired of you turning you off. And to me, the, the the really bitter irony of what you were describing, especially when it comes to kids, right? Oh, so I can't let my kid, you know, go down to the to the mall and hang out with their friends or go to a park and hang out with their friends because, you know, oh, my God, there's dangerous people in the world. But I will let them post photographs of themselves on social media accounts where actual predators can find them you know, message them privately, lure them into a situation where, you know, bad things happen. Like, how is that better? <laughs> well, and look, they just, even that, I mean, how much of that is overstated as well? We don't even know. I mean, I don't know what the actual studies are on this, but, but again, this feeling that around every corner is a monster to be avoided is part of a marketing plan, essentially. You know, fear and consumption has always been the easiest way to sell something. Um, mm-hmm. I was just – I was watching a, a Russell Brand video. I'll, I'll post on Twitter. I think it's a good one. Um, and he was reading some experts from a book that I just ordered, in fact, called The Rise and Fall of, Neo, of the Neoliberal Order by Gary Gressel. And um, it talks about neoliberalism, not as we sort of colloquially use it to mean – modern day liberals or people who are modern day Democrats, but more neoliberalism as an economic system. The mm. emphasis on on open and free market, no government interference, globalization, um, which has evolved into the, the state working for the market, not just allowing it to operate without restrictions and oversight, but rather aiding in its success. And we can look at as, as, as we can look to an example of that of the uh, the airlines. You know, when they were about to fail, and the state bailed them out under a truly mm-hmm. free market system. They if they fail, they fail, right? But under neoliberalism, the state operates and colludes with these free free markets to keep them buoyed upward, right? At the expense oftentimes of working class people. And one of the things that that was really interesting to me, which I think is um, speaks to this sort of blowback that you're talking about, is that neoliberalism as a economic system, which was championed by both the left and the right, um, the Bill Clintons and the New Gingrich, uh, it 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 really peaked at the 90s and an offshoot of that was this idea of what he calls neo-victorians and cosmopolitans or what we would probably call the left and the right today but i think that those terms are more accurate because as neoliberalism arose you had traditionalists you had people who preferred the old you know, ways of raising a family, the old family uh, structures, the old job structures, the old ideas of 
what America is, American cultures, et cetera, et cetera. Very rooted in like a very neo-Victorian mindset. And then you had the Mm -hmm. cosmopolitans who were the folks who were more into multicultural uh, environments, diversity, obviously the champion rights. And there are, by the way, there are pros and cons to both sides of things. You know, on the one hand, on the neo-Victorians, while we traditionally would consider conservatives, libertarians to be in that camp, there was also the maintaining of institutions that created brotherhood, that created um, community, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, that have been withered away. Um, And as a negative on the the cosmopolitans, while yes, they did champion a lot of social rights that we – uh, all benefit from today. There also was this sort of over reliance, over reliance on postmodernism, wherein everything is okay, everything is okay, mm. nothing is wrong. There is no right or wrong. There's no more <laughs> anything, um, oh. which of course opens the door to some stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about on Twitter, and as it involves certain uh, cases that are coming up, civil cases that are coming mm. up. So. You know, it, this was all brought up in contents of the Will Smith slap, right? And you can sort of ah. you can very easily see how the sides got divided, and yeah, which is a baffling. Yeah, I, it's baffling. but it's not when you <laughs> when you consider that for a generation you have under neoliberalism these two very distinct cultural camps that view the world mm. differently, and that are often pitted against each other. Right. Yeah. As a method of distraction. So, you know, the Bill Clintons of the world and the Newt Gingriches of the world seem like polar opposites. Nowadays, that might be uh, Mitch McConnell and um, I don't know who's on the Democratic side, uh, Biden, maybe, or or AOC. Let's call it that. Let's say AOC and Mitch McConnell. Right. It doesn't really matter because they'll be they'll present these figureheads that represent these cultural differences. And they are legitimate differences. But. Behind the scenes, these politicians, these world leaders oftentimes have far more in common than differences and they work together. You know, the World Trade Organization was a good example of collusion between Gingrich and Clinton. Um, You could look at Biden spending more money on the, uh, you know, the Pentagon than ever before uh, in this time period where everyone there seems to be this huge. Everyone's talking about the Will Smith slap or the Supreme Court uh, nomination. But in the meantime, if you look at the economics and you remove the cultural aspect and just look at economics, both sides are kind of in lockstep. So short answer long, I think people are, <laughs> I think people are finally getting that. I think people are finally starting to realize mm-hmm. because life's starting to really suck for a lot of folks. Gas. I just put yeah. gas into it. was like six thirty nine to put in Ooh. gas. It's ridiculous. And Out. so the strain is be- starting to become so unbearable that I do mm-hmm. think that people are starting to recognize that this isn't working, that this fear mm-hmm. and consumption is not working, that these technological toys that we've been given to distract ourselves or to make our lives better aren't working. I don't, you know, as an actress, I'm sure when you get asked to, share your your instagram it, it doesn't make you feel like the system is working better it actually feels like it's working worse when we look at tech companies taking over um entertainment companies it doesn't seem like it makes it better it seems like it makes it worse and so i think mm-hmm. that you know the, even the experience of a movie theater like even if people can't help but be on their phone when they watch stuff at home i think that internally on an existential level people are starting to realize even if they don't know why this isn't working. 
this isn't mm-hmm. making me happy. I don't like this. I mean, I'm in this constant state of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. And so this fear and consumption model, I think is peaking. And I, and I don't know what the next step is to sedate everyone, but I, I think that at, we're at this point right now where we're living in this perpetual frustration and the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns really exemplified and augmented that frustration. And I think that as the doors open and we start to step outside, so to speak, and we start to think about how that affects our relationship with entertainment or our jobs, I think it's going to be very fascinating to see as a society what direction we go into because I feel like we've just been hit over the head with this for so long that most people are miserable and no one wants to be yeah. miserable. No matter what you no matter what you think the solution is, where it's whether it's a, a more neo-Victorian mindset or a cosmopolitan mindset, I think that you can recognize that wherever you're at right now, you remember those like mall maps that you are here. You're in miserable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, you are miserable. You are yeah. miserable. Now, where you go from there to become less miserable, that's going to be very fascinating, I think. And I think it will impact things that were traditionally thought of as to be unwavering, such as entertainment. I also I want to thank Christina once again for being such a great host and and sharing with us, you know, some of the dissolving some of the misconceptions when it comes to acting and Hollywood and how it all works. I think there's this idea that the movie industry is this very 24-7 glamour show, and it's far from that. In fact, for most of us, we're just working-class blokes just like everyone else. And that includes actors. And the, and the sort of the ritual that actors have to go through, working actors have to go through in order to just be considered for parts is kind of absurd. I think it's the, the kind of thing that people don't realize. They think acting is just make-believe. It's just going into uh, a, a, a meeting a director and getting signed in a restaurant. And the fact of the matter is, is the headshots, the audition tapes, the in-person auditions, the showing up in costume, not in costume, what's the right look, what's the right lighting. There's all kinds of weird absurdities and idiosyncrasies that go involved. And at the end of the day, it's a very relationship-based industry. So I thought sort of pulling the curtain back and exposing a little bit of that would be really interesting for folks to hear. So maybe there's a, will be an increased appreciation for, you know, your working actors, not necessarily celebrities or stars, but the, the people who fill out the scenes, the people who are just trying to support themselves and their families doing a craft and an art that they love recognize that it's not so easy and it's not always so glamorous. So I want to thank Christina so much for all her time. Don't forget to check in on Monday for part two of my conversation with Christina. And until next time, gold rings on you all.